0: When I was young, I learned that love was all about romantic comedies, Valentine's Day, chocolate, and flowers. A lot of capitalist, heterosexual BS. Now, I know that real love is ferocious, it's terrifying, and it's a catalyst for change. I'm Ethan Lipsitz, and I created Love Extremist Radio as a platform to engage with people who are on the front lines of wrestling with and redefining love on their terms. They're activists, artists, and creators, all making change in their communities and the world. Thanks for being here. Together, let's define what it means to be a love extremist.
1: Love is the truth. Love is, the truth. Love is the truth.
0: Alex Ebert is an award-winning film composer and the founder and frontman for the Platinum-selling Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. (laughs) He has recently turned his focus to philosophy and is completing a number of projects on culture and emergence while living in New Orleans, Louisiana. Welcome, Alex.
1: Wow, that's so embarrassing. If I had known you were going to read that out loud, I would have changed it. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah. Well,
1: you
0: know, it is it is what it is. Uh I, okay. <laughs> I you know, I love embarrassing my guests from the jump. Um good, good, I'm going to go even deeper on it and ask you to define love for me as our first question because why not? You know, let's get into the meat. Um Okay. Yeah, what does love mean to you, Alex?
1: I just keep thinking that hadaway song what is love yeah uh,
0: yeah baby okay. baby don't hurt me
1: yeah so good it is it came on it came on recently and it was like um it really did the trick yeah um you know all right so uh, all right i think that that love for me uh very simply is sort of a uh, sense subjectively speaking of of reconnection um there's sort of this this sense for me of a finding. Sometimes it's a feeling of a lack I didn't know was there, but generally it's a sort of a remembering, a finding, a refinding, um, a reconnection. And um, with someone or something, you know, it's like falling in love with music or falling in love with a person or uh, meeting a new best friend. It's like um, this sense that you were always there somehow. I just didn't know you were there. And almost a an astoundment at the uh, the fact that this person hadn't been with you for the whole time. And yeah, just this sort of like relief of finding, of remembering something that you were once connected with. So for me, there's a certain aspect of uh, memory involved. And I actually have a, I have a bit of a reason for why this might be.
2: Yeah, um, I mean...
1: <clears throat> obviously, uh, the easiest way to explain this is just the, the cosmogony that we all, um, by the way, I, I didn't make that word up. That's, cos, that's the origins of cosmology, cosmogony, that, um, uh, that we're all sort of familiar with, like the Big Bang, right? So the Big Bang is this idea that something that was uh, smaller, like infinitely smaller than an atom, something at more like Planck-like scale, an ultimate compression of, of matter that contained everything, space-time, all the atoms that would be, all the little pieces of matter that would form planets, all the gravitons and gluons and protons and all that shit was in this tiny compactment. And um, in, in essence then, we were all having... A sort of existential orgy at that point, right? We are all completely enmeshed with one another, pre-tangled. So this idea of entanglement, particles acting like you know simultaneously to different stimu- to the same stimulus, but they're miles apart from each other. Um, in theory, uh, they've done it in practice, but not miles apart. But anyway. Um, uh, this idea that when we meet someone, when we fall in love, when I see something, when I feel something that stirs up that love, what it is, is a remembrance of that wholeness, where we were all, where I was it, and it was I, and, um, and that sense of like self-dissolution, the disappearance of self, but also the gaining of a much larger self, and mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's sort of the experience to me.
0: I really appreciate the fact that that definition integrates the three kind of frames of love that I like to delineate, which are self, interrelational, and collective, or planetary. And mm. even beyond planetary, I think we could say universal. And that universality is almost where where we come from. Um, and we move into this more and more kind of divisions over the generations, but ultimately that universality is where we can go back to when we feel that love and that connection. And to speak to the kind of miles apart but being one makes me think of kind of the aspen trees as a single living organism, Mm -hmm. right? Or um, so many mycelium and fungi that are actually just Mm -hmm. communicating under one kind of network. So yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome to, to hear that definition play out and, and, and I'm curious how that definition of love kind of compels your daily behavior. How are you integrating that into your life and
1: practice? (sighs) That's a, that's a terrible question (laughs) because it's so hard to answer and it's, and it's the most embarrassing part, right? Because it's like, to what extent, basically the real question is to what extent are you failing? (laughs) <laughs> this incredible
0: well, I mean, I can speak to all of the love songs you've written, right? All of the work you've done, you know, just in being contrarian or, or, or not even, but like just bringing certain perspectives to the world. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of love in that. So, I mean, there's... No, no, for answer sure. It. I mean, I try.
1: <laughs> I think I think the way that I do it is I, you know, I try. I was also going to say that, you know, the, the internet that we're on right now is connecting us miles apart. Yeah, um, L.A., New Orleans, um, somewhat instantaneous. Anyway, but I'll I'll try and answer your question. Um, <laughs> um, I think that the way that the way that I, well, the way that it affects me on a daily basis, uh, if it's a good day, is it lends me some fearlessness um, that I can tap into this totality. I can tap into sort of the dissolution of the small eye and the um, solution of the big eye and gain some sort of fearlessness in what I do, uh, you know, uh, what I do that might scare me or things that uh, might hurt or uh, something that embarrassed me or a, a, an emotional pain that I went through. You know, they all can become a little bit more they sort of dissolve along with the eye. All those problems are problems of the, you know, the self. And when the self gains a larger self, those problems, um, you know, they sort of dissolve in the ocean of the larger, the larger entity. So, so that's how it ideally affects me on a daily basis.
0: Do you have a, a story or a, a recent disillusion or facing a fear that has occurred that you'd be willing to share with us in terms of kind of effect?
1: um yeah i mean look they happen to me all (laughs) they happen to me all the time i i I would say let me see i'll try and try and come up with uh something while i dilly dally uh in generalizations but um they happen all the time to me um anytime i'm embarrassed or anytime I feel like oh no or I just uh I just put my foot in my mouth. I uh any of the like I'm a big believer and actually this is something that that I you know at some point want to really put together a whole synthesized like digestible package of this for for people. I think that's the book I'm writing on cool. I think cool is basically at the end of the day about status anxiety. It, It modulates status anxiety. And so, you know, there is an immense amount of status anxiety that guides us all uh, invisibly. Like when Adam Smith talked about the invisible hand of capitalism, well, that the actual invisible hand is status anxiety, Um, you know, and everything from formalities to handshakes to, um, oh, what will they think to, I hope I, you know, all of this stuff associated with remaining in the good graces of the tribe to which you belong all of that stuff that has to do with being safe all of that stuff which is essentially driven by a fear of death a fear of being ostracized from the clan Mm -hmm. and dying in a freezing tundra by yourself Uh, that's all that biology that's still at play Is 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 guiding us on these like little imperceptible levels. Like right now, I'm a little anxious that I'm talking to you. Why? Because I I have this sense that maybe some other people are listening, and uh, (laughs) you know I'm going to be judged. All of this stuff is at play all the time, right? And so, the thing, the thing that (laughs) where I use this dissolution into the larger self as sort of a a fearlessness is where I think, well, fuck it. (laughs)
2: Like
1: you know, at the end of the day. Fuck it. At the end of the day, quite literally, the sun goes down. At the end of the day, I dissolve back into the larger self, um, and you know. So, yeah, yeah. that's how I use it. Yeah.
0: I, I I like to say, at the end of the day, it's the end of the day. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's fascinating, like this this idea of. Um, Uh, I guess like death as being this ultimate fear and and, uh, and social isolation. And I wonder, you know, it's also there's this comfort in knowing we all, you know, when the plane's going down, we're all going down with it. Like no one's gonna escape death at this point. And so it's kind of this like great equalizer. And I wonder if there there are fears or graver concerns that exist while you have your body, while you have the delicacy of life. before you die that, that you face on a regular basis and influence your behavior?
1: Um you mean things that would somehow be fears that I could isolate that were totally isolated and orthogonal to death?
0: Yeah, or like the, the things that actually
1: kind of I, I don't believe I don't believe in that. <laughs> yeah.
0: You think death is like the the principal fear and ultimately all, all fears boil up to death. Yeah. I mean I, I've definitely come to that conclusion myself. And I also recognize, like, that social isolation thing is kind of like, it it does happen, right? I mean, have you experienced that much in your life where, you know, either you've been called out for something you did or, you know, you've been challenged in a way that really felt like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be taken out of the group and no longer, you know, seen as a credible actor in whatever I I choose to do?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. I I mean, I I think in a way we all either have or we've had brushes with it, you know, like we've had closed calls or whatever it is. I remember a a memory just came to mind. I was like 14 years old. I'm in junior high. And uh, and, you know, I'm basically like a freshman. Um, I go to the bathroom and I have to take a dump. I have to take a number two. Wow. Never did
0: that in school. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it was, you know, so so I go. I I had to. It was like one of those, you know, but I was nervous the whole time. I'm sweating bullets. I hope nobody walks in, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so everything gets done. I'm good. I clean my hands, look in the mirror, looking sharp, walk outside, start walking. And this senior, Dan Sloyan, if you're listening, starts laughing at me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he's laughing his ass off and then he's pointing at me and then other people are laughing <laughs> pointing at me and I'm like what the fuck is going on and I look down this like 6 foot long piece of toilet paper is dragging on my the, heel the classic toilet paper heel classic Trump <laughs> up the airplane toilet paper um, now that's such a small one like I have a much worse I think the calamity of my life if I may digress for a second I was um I was 10 And very quickly, I was at camp. I was climbing. I was doing uh, very serious mountaineering for a 10-year-old. And I miss one day of the mountaineering thing. Now, those are my group, the mountaineering people. Now, they go off on a hike. And the whole day, I'm thinking, they're talking shit about me. I know they're talking shit about me. But then I'm like, nah, they're not talking shit. You're being crazy. But I, I have this fear that they're talking shit. This goes on for like six hours. They get back from their big hike. And I'm in this courtyard. And they're coming down. There's about twenty of them, and a camp counselor. He's like twenty years, maybe twenty-one years old. And all of a sudden, one of the kids goes, "There he is!" Ha 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 ha! And it was like a, it was like a dream. I couldn't even believe it. All twenty of these kids were pointing, doubled over, laughing at me, right. as they came walking back from this uh, thing. And then the camp counselor, the adult, is laughing, and he goes, "Do do 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 do." And he starts laughing, doubling over. Now, I don't know what's going on. And then finally I hear one of them say, he looks like an alien.
2: <laughs>
1: the whole thing, he was doing the sound from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. the camp Of course, counter. of course, yeah. And the kids are laughing at me all saying I look like an alien and they can't stop. And it goes on. And I just couldn't believe that um, I had been betrayed you know to that extent uh, throughout the entire day. And so, you know, like these issues of... Um, what it is to belong and all these things, you know, I could think, ah, well, you know, whatever, they're no big deal. They're just anxieties. They have, you know, whatever. I'll find another. What they really are, are a fear of death. And I, and I do believe that every fear, <laughs> that everything that stirs adrenaline is related to survival. Let's put it that way.
2: Mm.
0: So the beginning, uh, do you feel like you've overcome the fear of death? Do you think you're past that?
1: I think, I think that's a process and I'm further along than I was before, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd love
0: to, I'd love, I'd love to kind of get into maybe some of the practices and the processes that get you there. And the way that I would love to go into that is asking you what your favorite love story is, personal love story.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, And asking for favorites,
0: I know is tough. So maybe first, first thought, best thought.
1: Um... I mean, my favorite love story, I'll just be general because, but to, is uh, friendship. Mm-hmm. And that could be lovers, could be whatever, but seeing like a pair of pals arm in arm, like walking anywhere, whether they're drunk, whether they're children, whether they're, you know, an old couple, um, this is the thing that like really tickles my heart. Um, but I, I wanted to say that, you know, um, I was uh, on heroin for t- two years of my life from age 20 to 22 and <clears throat> I went to AA and by the way speaking of a death initiation that, that's what I was unwittingly doing to myself I was trying to put myself through a death, death initiation because we have none in this society mm-hmm. but um and uh and I got sober and all that but the only thing I, you know I, I really wasn't I really wasn't over it. I really felt like I needed to cling to, to AA and I, needed, I, I really felt the fear um, until I confronted death. And then after I sort of confronted death, um, and in those days, I was like a hard boiled, you know, um, scientism physicalist. Like I was like, there is no spirit, fuck all that. Like I was very aggro and sort of punk. But that's what I needed, that's where I needed to be to confront. The idea that none of me would persist, no consciousness. I would just, you know, mulch into the ground and at best I become a tree or become mycelium. But I had to really sort of go through that in order to then kind of be entirely liberated from the whole affair of addiction. So,
0: was the process uh, of doing the heroin or was it getting kicking the heroin? That was your confrontation.
1: No, it was uh, the confrontation uh, was. F- Four years into sobriety. Oh wow. It's like that that was my confrontation. No, the 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 heroine, that whole saga was more of the sort of uh misguided death initiation, manufacturing of hardship and all that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. What what role do you think that plays in our in our world right now? Like do you think that there's function for that self guided death initiation? Do you think there's there's a need for that? Yeah.
1: I do. Um, I think the more we're aware that these kinds of behaviors are death initiations, um, the more I, I think we can begin to become conscious, uh, and, and, uh, and guide those sort of initiations in much healthier and maybe even collective ways returning to a, a sort of more tribalistic, um, scenario of you know initiation where you come come back from your initiation and you and uh decompress and integrates and all that with uh, people who've done it before so yeah
0: so you you see that kind of as a coming of age perhaps or like like
1: i mean i think that i needed it around the coming of age you know historically that's what the death initiation is uh is coming of age uh sort of trope Mm -hmm. um yeah uh You know, I mean, we have the psychedelic stuff now for palliative care and for people who are dying, they get to sort of go on mushrooms and realize that, you know, death is actually not what they thought it was. And now they can die more peacefully. And I think that's great. But why wait to the end of life to have that realization? Why not live your whole life feeling that way? And I'm not saying to give kids... Uh, ayahuasca but what i am saying is that um, some focus around um, that kind of confrontation at an early enough age that you can enjoy life that way i think uh, would be transforming
0: see i've really been grappling with this because um i've i've been spending the last four years trying to kind of teach the things that i've been learning through brain cancer diagnosis um that Mm -hmm. is terminal and like I, I, my 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 inquiry or my curiosity is yeah how do I how do I offer this as something that nobody else has to go through, and mm. yet, time and time again it seems as though actually the going through it is the o- only way, whatever that <laughs> it is. You know, yeah. whether it's a brain cancer diagnosis for me or, you know, heroin, you know, and kicking that. And then the four years after for you, like whatever it is, what is, you know, we all need these initiatory things that yeah. drive us to confront mortality at an early age. Would you agree? Or do yes. You th- okay. Ab-
1: and- no, I absolutely agree. I think I think what you're talking about is experience versus just learning. Right. And um, and that lived embodied experience of that confrontation. <clears throat> you know, can be manufactured in really safe ways. I mean, um, you know, I don't know whether it's like a, a walkabout or an, a vision quest or a, um, you know, just like a, who knows? Well, like, we, let's get creative, but we've lost it. You know, I mean, now we have the bar mitzvah and collegiate hazing, no, no offense to the bar mitzvah. That's that's legit, <laughs> Le- learning all that Torah. All I got was a fender you know.
0: strap, bro. That's all I got out of my <laughs> yeah. bar mitzvah.
1: Right, right. <laughs> So, but you know, um, uh, quinceañeras—they've really been watered down to present giving, and um, you know, we could get a little more creative with that and have it be fun. And I, I, I think we need to not, not shy away from this because, you know, I, as I've told you and we've talked about, I found a terribly interesting uh, parallel between um, cancer cells, which right. uh, you know all about, yeah. and um, and uh, and a refusal to die. Hmm. A, a refusal uh, to um uh, in the case of cancer cells submit to apoptosis which is programmed cell death all healthy cells um need to be ready for uh apoptosis and accept it if they become you know um deleterious to the body but cancer cells refuse that they decide not to die and that's actually what makes them cancer cells and then they you know proliferate and um Anyway, I just found that interesting in the context of our capitalist society, not to be that guy right now, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, We're all in the Petri you know, dish. It's all very interesting. Our desire, you know, we don't, we don't want to be sad. It's good vibes only, right? There's a cancerous vibe. Um, we don't want to confront death. We put all our old people in, in old people homes. That's an avoidance of death. That's very cancerous. We, we want infinite growth in our business. That's very cancerous. It's like, um, you know, sort of obvious.
0: Yeah. Extraction, yeah, it's okay. all happening. I, I think I, I want to go back to this kind of initiatory process and what I don't know what what credence that gives you. Do you think that your, you know, self-proclaimed bad guru status um, was available to you because you were you had confronted death at a young age and allowed you to embody the, the leadership of the musical work you did and, and, and the stages that you commanded?
1: Um, I think my confrontation with death is absolutely central to everything that I fucking have probably done. Maybe I'm entering like a slightly new phase now. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, like if you listen to all the Edward Sharp stuff, um, Like, you know, everyone's like, oh, my God, you guys are such a wonderful, hippie, happy, joyous celebration band. Wow. Like, that's all you do, huh? You're just happy all the time. It's like, that's why, you know, I wrote that song Truth. The truth is that I haven't shook my shadow, meaning like, hey, guys, I'm speaking directly to my fans. The truth is that I haven't shook my shadow. Um, You know, it's very um, it's very much baked in. Like if you listen to that first album. The first song starts with, I was only five when my dad told me I would die. Those are the first lyrics of the album. Yeah. And that, that's when I found out I would die. I was five. I'll never forget it. And ever since then, my life was, you know, became sort of more maudlin and, and a little bit more sad. It had the oscillations of of emotion and poetry. And, and suddenly I realized that the um, the train goes by, that the passing of time, that This conversation, everything's going to die and how sad and beautiful. If it weren't for that, what good would be appreciation? What good would be gratitude? What good would be sort of, I don't know if beauty uh, would be able to sort of lift itself up up to the realms of poetry. Because what what appreciation would would we have for anything that was always there? And um, yeah, so I don't know. I think that it's just central to poetry in general, uh, death. You know, the at least the acknowledgement of the passing of things,
0: and also what I'm gleaning is it's also central to love, right? Like
1: absolutely. How do you how do you link those things? To okay. I mean, romance to me is the acknowledgement that uh, that this thing is fleeting, and that creates the urge, uh, the drive uh, to hasten. Uh, hasten the love so that, um, you know, that creates this sort of compulsion. It's like, we have to do this now. Oh my God, this is amazing. Like, you know, Uh, and there's this sort of like drive that accelerates that process in romance. Um, Yeah.
0: Wow. That's a really powerful thread. The idea that it's almost like, uh, yeah, this, this unquenchable thirst for love and connection that needs to happen now, because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, it could be gone. And, yeah. and, and those deaths exist constantly, right? You're not just referring to the big major capital D no. of our life, but it's the Good loss God, of a man. friendship, the loss of a relationship, the loss
1: of a moment. The, the loss of the sun. I used to cry. <laughs> there was a period of my life for like a year where I would like kind of shed a tear every time the sun went down. I actually <laughs> inherited from my father Who literally sheds a tear every time the sun goes down? Total weirdo, but um, I did uh, experience that for a year Uh, because, you know, it. (laughs) What isn't, uh, what isn't, what isn't fucking desperately sad about the passing of all of this life and the prospect of no longer even having a consciousness, you know, Um, or no longer having a body, or any of these sort of questions. Um, I think it's all beautiful. It's fucking incredible. It, it makes us all, what it turns us all into, de facto, are, are heroes. Each person that lives, <laughs> um, you know, is is a sort of hero to me.
0: Oh, we could be heroes just for one day. <laughs> um, uh-huh. uh, so uh, there's something interesting there because you, you're you're kind of equating, like, the heartbreak of the end of the day, the loss of a breath, a relationship, a person, but there's also the discovery of love within that and the fact that your work as a creative and as an artist um, so often was a catalyst for love, especially collectively. Um, And and, and I'm curious how the joy um, just emanates from this constant
1: reflection on dying you know what it emanates from the confrontation with the edge with the confrontation with the unknown with the confrontation with uh with death with that obliteration of self because there's nothing more religious uh the more defining of the religious experience than um the dissolution of self into let's say god right or the universe or source or whatever fucking clan you're from and whatever lingo you want to speak um there's nothing that's more sort of universally understood to be the religious experience than the sort of enlarging of the self the unifying the union the marriage um with you and whomever or with you and whatever so that conjoining um only happens when you approach it and um being at the edge of the stage letting go saying "fuck it because i have the safety net of it all underneath me not because i'm just out there uh, on a buoy by my actual self, but because I'm I'm taking this leap from myself into my sort of, you know, larger safety. And um, and so that that danger is actually the greatest safety. I, I, I much prefer, I'm much more myself on stage than I am off stage. I'm much more racked with, you, you know, senses of status, anxiety, and awareness, and all this stuff. When I'm on stage, I'm in the zone. I'm hardly thinking.
0: Right. It's you know like, I mean? it's the flow state, and it's the... Yeah. And it's the connection to something greater and the co-creative nature of that experience. I, so I often associate kind of co-creation and love, you know, whether it be making love yes. to co-create a, a child or to create a, a project or any type of co-creative expression and performance and, and yeah, being in a band or, or leading something like that is some of the most profound um, ways to get into that zone. Do you have practices that you, that you engage with on a regular basis that, that bring you yeah. there?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. I can share a few. Uh, I don't use all these now. I, use, I tend to use like one at a time, but I'll just give you a little, see if I can remember a few. Yeah. Uh, one really easy one is to simply defocus your eye, like basically cross your eyes and stare at the space in front of you hmm. um, and, um, and just f- focusing on that, uh, putting your attention Um, on nothing um, is an amazingly easy way to sort of help kickstart a dissolution of um, of all of the definitions you have of yourself and the things you're worried about and and to just sort of marry uh, with everything. I have a lot of a lot of love for nothing. Nothing (laughs) is very much something. Um, Yeah, there is no nothing. All that negative space is uh, perhaps even consciousness. In my view. But anyway, uh here's a good here's an interesting one. Um very similar to an uh, uh a kind of meditation that Osho, whatever you think of Osho, um <laughs> that Osho uh had in a book somewhere. But I, I happened on something that was sort of similar. So before I go on stage, another thing that I started doing when I started smoking weed again <laughs> was using weed to make me more nervous before going on stage the idea was i started to notice that i started to get so sort of comfortable on stage that i could go on stage slightly nervous that's how i knew that i was too comfortable on stage and what i mean what i mean by that is when i would feel completely overwhelmed with nerves there was no way i could do anything except let it all go if I was feeling just a little nervous, I could deal with it and sort of keep it at bay while I was on stage. So I would smoke weed to get myself as absolutely nervous as possible stat- like static like you know anxiety wise <laughs> to the point where, where you know all right you 're on stage in three minutes it 's like, okay, I have no choice now but to let all this go so i 'm not necessarily recommending that for anyone, but instead what i 'll recommend is this Osho meditation, which you can try and see if you 're one of these people. They would benefit from this kind of thing. So what it is, is if you're sad or you're angry, and I've done this one many times and it's worked every time, but that's just me. Um, and you feel like you're not going to kill yourself if you tried a little thought experiment, then you can do this. And that's real too, by the way. Uh, get more sad. No, sadder than that. Sadder than that. Sadder than that. No, you need to you need to feel, you need to tell yourself you're the, the, you're the saddest person... In the history of the universe no you're even sadder than that and you just become completely the most destitute version of yourself possible and at some point it's going to suddenly crack it's going to become absurd you're going to sort of artificially push your sadness past a break point beyond which you suddenly become the witness it becomes not a part of you it becomes sort of an act and it helps to create that sort of like witness state where you're not your, you're sort of not your sadness, mm. um, or at the very least, it, it's not that you're not your sadness, it's that you're, you're sadness until you're not. That's what I mean. Mm. Um, so it's like, you know, if you, if, well, I'll speak for myself, um, being traumatized, let's say as a kid, and I grow up and I don't fully deal with it, or having a fear of death, but I don't fully deal with it. I'll just end up living with that for the rest of my life. The only way to get rid of it is to fully deal with it. It has to sort of expend its kinetic energy that it has stored up. And, uh, and there's ways to sort of um, accelerate that, uh, that, ex- that expulsion of their energy by, by, you know, I mean, therapy is a good example. Like I do somatic therapy. Right now, mm-hmm. and we dive right into. You know, you take a breath and you tell them how you're feeling, and then you say, "I have a knot in my shoulder." They say, "All right, relax into that," and suddenly memories come up, and it's all about deep diving into these little nooks and crannies, guided by the somatic body, that bring up these memories, and then you deal with those memories. They're never great memories, by the way. <laughs> it's i have never I'm never like, "Oh, I have a pain in my shoulder." What's coming up? Ah, oh, this amazing ride at Six Flags. <laughs> um <laughs> different you know, kinds of rides something... <laughs> yeah so you know so there there's there's those accelerative um things and i think i you know i'm really into that right now to trying to just accelerate uh, whatever i can
0: yeah no that makes sense and it's interesting to think about how you push yourself almost to the edge past the edge um mm-hmm. to get to this place of witness to out almost outside of your body to be able to experience something be, that is both within and without um, mm-hmm. and start to be able to look at it maybe more from a 360 degree perspective. I, I, I want to change gears a little bit here. And I'm thinking about um, just, we've been talking about kind of that incredible nature of the collective creation and how that euphoric experience um, can drive so much love uh, within and without And lately, I know you've been focused a lot more on um, kind of maybe solo pursuits. At least that's what I'm what I'm seeing from the work that you've been sharing with the world. Um, Sure. And I'm curious to hear kind of how you're perceiving this evolution uh, as being as an artist and a thinker in shifting from being kind of of the collective and a leader of literally kind of a movement through your music towards perhaps more of a singular leadership style.
1: Um. So for me, my experience so far on Earth is um, the pattern I'm detecting, for myself anyway, is is oscillatory, Um, so that before the Edward Sharp um, moment, um, I again, you know, went through the thing, what preceded that was a bottlenecking of spirit, a sort of crisis Um, I had to abandon everything in my life. I had to sort of go on my own, um, my own walkabout, um, and be sort of alone in a sense, and then come back. And so I think what's happening now is a similar thing, because what happens when you do go out into the desert or, you know, there's so many parables about, Mm -hmm. They're going out, they're going up onto the top of the mountain as a monk and coming back in the desert and coming back. And um, the thing that, that happens when you do sort of go out on your own is that um, you tend to commune more with the universe than you do with your friends.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and um, you tend, there's more time for reflection and, uh, and these sorts of things. So I, I think that I'm coming back. It's that um, I'm, I've, I've taken a little trip to God to pick up, some, pick up some new goodies and see what I can find, if I find anything worthy of uh, trotting back. Because ultimately, I don't want to be um, a commodity. I don't want to be... I want to return to Edward Sharp when I have something really special to show you guys. Mm. Um, I don't want to return to Edward Sharp just because... Um, you know i could continue to iterate on the success of edward sharp
0: right so the idea that yeah. commo- just to clarify the commodity would be just playing the old hits you know on ad infinitum you know as a way uh, to keep well, the dream alive that's,
1: that's one way but but i think the thing that i'm referring to more now is um, making another album
2: mm-hmm.
1: so i can be cre- i could be i'm 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 being creative but for edward sharp to just get in the studio to make another album as a matter of course, where I I don't think does justice to the impetus of Edward Sharp to begin with. Like, you know, it was like a life saving and life changing event for me, that whole, that whole period. And, and then that kind of that energy, that burst ran its course. And so, you know, I'm just being sensitive to that and waiting for the next burst. Of course I could continue and just put out some hits that sound like home, Um, but uh, I just don't want to.
0: Well, and there's also (laughs) something in embracing the death of that moment to allow Mm -hmm. for a birth of another one. Um, And I I appreciate the oscillatory notion of how you're approaching your creative practice and your output, and i think it leads us really nicely into life purpose um and for those of us who are you know have this big question mark life purpose what's this all about and i think just one thing that i'm gleaning from this conversation and something that i think about a lot is it's not a fixed destination there isn't a a lighthouse at the end of the peninsula that we're going to and once we're there we can stay there and life purpose has been achieved it's this ongoing journey and oscillation and pattern yeah. and, and discovery. And once you get to the lighthouse, then there's, you know, the waves that you want to cr- cross on the boat. And, you know, there's so many metaphors for this, but um, I'm curious how you consider this term life purpose and how you may, you know, support others in helping them start to engage with that idea
1: or that notion of what's my purpose. Okay. Well, First, I would try and disambiguate from, uh, you know, probably the toughest job is to disambiguate what our actual purpose is from the purpose we think our purpose might be. Um, <laughs> you know, it's so difficult to tell any of this shit apart because we're part of these sort of social apparatus and we have the idealistic and ideological language and uh, childhood and upbringing and semiotics and meanings and memes. That we've all sort of grown accustomed to you know you ask a a kindergartner what they want to be when they grow up and they all say famous now right or a youtube star which is the same thing and um you know and i've 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 thought about this a lot uh now fame (laughs) you'll see i really do like talking about death even so fame is probably the most classic and possibly the oldest example of, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, there's some author who I'm blanking on right now, but what he would call, um, uh, God damn it. What's it? Sorry. What's it? What's it? <laughs> what is it called when you can die? You are
0: <laughs> uh, mortal
1: mortal. Thank you. Yeah. So he calls it an Im- immortality project. Okay, yes, of so, course. So right. Right. It's sort of one of the, the, the first immortality projects. And, and, it, and in some ways, it's the most lasting and most um, most important and I, I, possibly the like the most central immortality project that humans have ever concocted. So this idea of fame, of your face, or your likeness, or your being, or whatever it is, some aspect or projection about you persisting beyond the moment, beyond the day, beyond your lifetime, into other lifetimes, persisting ad infinitum. The whole Grecian idea of the hero, based on you know things like you know, Homer's Achilles and whatnot, is that the hero does their, their stuff on the battlefield for fame, but they don't get fame just by doing it on the battlefield. The way they get the fame is that they get the muses to sing uh, a threnos, uh, which is a, a Grecian for like a dirge, a, 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 a song about mm. them. Without mm. the muses singing a song about Achilles, Achilles doesn't get famous. <laughs> so he needs the media. He needs the media to make him famous. And now we live in a wholly mediated world where everybody is their own muse, where we can just post shit and eternalize ourselves, make ourselves immortal, um, you know, at the click of a button. So uh, that was a long, scrambling rant uh, to say that um, that I have mixed feelings about, about, about uh, you know, whether, you know, the validity to that, like I, I have some sense that that consciousness persists beyond physical death. So in some sense, I'm like, OK, well, good for everybody. They're all getting a, maybe this is going to make everyone feel safe. Maybe everyone will feel like, oh, you know what? Maybe this is the path to confronting death. That everyone gets to eternalize themselves, know that they're eternal. And then all that same pressure, all those same uh, uh, static anxieties that lead back to death, all the anxieties that roll back, back to death will sort of dissipate because people will feel more eternalized. Now, unfortunately that seems to not be the case, right? Anxiety is up. Depression is up. Suicide is up. Right. So, um, so yeah.
0: Well, I think there's, there's a difference between the click of the button and, you know, eternalizing your voice or likeness, uh, to a couple hundred or a couple thousand people versus to millions or billions. And, and, and I think that, you know, much like the desire for more that we talk about, you know, in terms of the cancer, I think that desire exists also in the psyche as it relates to access and, and influence and legacy. And, you know, we talk about purpose leading to legacy and having something to leave behind not only maybe for our family but for many of us it's for the world um and that could be an egoic move or it could be something that's very martyr oriented um which you know I i guess i'm curious as someone who has had a certain degree of you know fame in the traditional sense how do you um how do you feel about like the responsibility you hold in that position? Is it something that you you think is important to uh, maintain and and cultivate and and use, or is it something that mm. doesn't hold much value in your life? Uh,
1: yeah, that oscillates too. I mean, I, I just did a recent experiment uh, that was kind of interesting. Honestly, I, I I just had a hunch and I said, hey. Uh, whoever posts the most shrug emojis on my Instagram can take over my Instagram for a week. <laughs> and, uh, some kid, you know, this, this kid made this incredible piece of art, uh, with like 48,000 shrug emojis that all formed to, to <laughs> congeal my face. And, um, I said, you won. And he took over my account. Ironically, he was a white dude with a beard, kind of could have passed for yeah, me. At he a looked glance. a lot
0: like you. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And, um, and so it was perfect because that's exactly what I wanted. Uh, not that I had, you know, in the sense that what I wanted was my own reality confusion, sort of dissolution confrontation. I was like, somebody is basically being an imposter of me. Someone is being me to the most people that I know, you know, in some, in in, in any sense that I'm in contact with. And, um, And I did that for a week. I didn't look at the Instagram. And what's so interesting is like, you know, he posted some stuff that I was, uh, you know, I had to go through, like, they weren't stuff for me. So I felt weird about it. Part of me was embarrassed. Should I take this stuff down? Should I leave it up? There's this whole thing I'm working through status anxiety and my own, my own brand. And what if people think that's actually me and all this stuff. (laughs) And, um, And I lost a bunch of followers, by the way. So that was also, that was like a part of the experience, a good, a healthy part of the experience. Mm -hmm. And what I found when I got back and started using it is I didn't fucking care. I just couldn't care. And there was something about that experiment that was actually pretty successful because I was curious if it was going to have any impact on my sort of desire for growth and maintaining the thing. And it's given me some distance so that I can answer your question fairly clearly that um, i have no responsibility <laughs> to being famous what i have a responsibility to what we all have a responsibility to is to so instead of disembodying ourselves and thinking about what will what will be we be remembered like in many many generations i think the question is what will i remember myself like on my deathbed Mm. and um and that's 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 ethics that's the whole premise of ethics to me that's sort of death (laughs) emics or or (laughs) deathics right it's like (laughs) it's like these those are the questions when you're in your when you're in your last moment yeah before you die you know we talked about purpose this is where you find meaning meaning happens looking back purpose happens going forward it's like on that last moment, what is, you know, what is meaning? And we can put our, I put myself there all the time as a thought experiment to see if what I'm doing is right or wrong. And, you know, for me, uh, I've made mistakes. Like on the second album for Edward Sharp, I had a song sounded just like home, but it was different and it was really cool, but I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And now looking back, we charted like number four. Um, we probably would have gone to one right? Like we would probably be a whole different band at this point. It'd probably be some kind of fuck God awful juggernaut. Um, but I didn't now looking back, my manager played that song for me recently. He's like, Hey, remember this one? I was like, Oh shit, that's actually kind of dope. I can't believe we didn't put that out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I made that, I, I was, I was, I was being very, very, very cautious of everything I've been talking about, but there's some instances where I was overly cautious of, of fame and what it would do. And I didn't want to be fake and all this stuff. But in some sense, you can go overboard. And I was, you know, the, the the earnest, honest, natural thing to do would be to put out a song that I love. But instead, I was thinking about what would people think. I was trying to cultivate. And, uh, you know, I guess at the end of the day, what I'd like to say about this is that I don't want to master life. I have no desire for that. I want life to master me. I want to become a master of being mastered. By life i want to become a the cleanest vessel the cleanest whistle for god's breath possible you know what i mean
0: mixed and mastered by god's breath <laughs> yeah. well exactly. That's, that's really powerful. And also speaking to kind of death as the reflection for checking in on purpose. I think that's really a potent um, application and even a practice we can do is what how we're spending our days something that we could die tomorrow and be happy with, you know, and and having that kind of journaling exercise or just reflection. I also think knowing the two questions most asked on people's deathbeds are, did I love and was I loved? Um, I've kind of come to the conclusion that love is ultimately our universal human purpose and it's our superpower. And so our ability to engage with it and spread it and, you know, hold it and share it is uh, a purpose that anyone can adopt. And I welcome you to do so. And love extremism is all about that. But something that's that's come up through this conversation. First off, I want to welcome questions. Um, And I think the way I want to do this is going to be new. I'm going to ask you to back channel me your question. Um, and it, once you do, then raise your hand and uh, I'll check out the question and then we'll bring you up. But there's been a lot of people who don't have questions and come on stage. And so I'm just going to ask for a back channel first and, um, you know, how to do that. And, uh, we'll keep going in the meantime, see if anyone wants to pop up. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in your perspective around this kind of relates to purpose and, and your mastering. What is the, the message that you think? the world or your community needs to hear right now. What what are the things that you think are really important to get out?
1: Uh well we talked a lot about about the death thing, so let me see if I can come up with something else. Uh there's something <laughs> on my mind. There's something on my mind. Um oh. I don't know, you know, like what I'm going through right now, I'll just kind of blab about what I'm finding important right now. Um, it's such a... It's like, I, I don't know if historically there's ever been more eggshells everywhere
2: mm.
1: and more, more triggers. And I don't just mean that culturally or socially or woke versus MAGA. I don't mean just that at all. I mean in terms of our awareness of our abuses and possibly in terms of the awareness of our inherited um, abuses or our inherited traumas or our inherited um, uh, negativities, uh, negative views, uh, whatever whatever they are, our, our emotional inheritance. And, um, and that's just like one part of the aspect, but it's like fi- figuring out in this in this age when all information is sort of compressing into the meme where nuance is being lost to games of telephone uh, literally you know retweeting and retweeting and there's there's wonderful theories about how in information theory each time a piece of information is passed along something essential to it um, is lost to entropy, so that information is constantly reducing and reducing. Uh, In other words, the way I explain that is that the nuance contained within a piece of information is constantly evaporating the more it gets shared. Um, I think that, you know, disengaging as an oscillatory practice, and whether that means with... Um, the internet and social media or it means with your girlfriend or boyfriend or they friend or if it means um, in the middle of an argument just practicing being like okay all of that as a sort of a a conquest in autonomy or at the very least like an effort to prove our autonomy, because when I talk to people about where we're headed, especially technologically, um, and, and, you know, all of our existential risks the things that might kill off humanity, um, with the exception of a few, are all man-made. Mm-hmm. They're all creations of technology. And then when we talk about, you know, well, of course, we wouldn't want to return ourselves to uh, some day where we didn't have technology, because, of course, well, because, of course, there's no... There's no actual reason. It's just that we're compelled. We're we, we feel that we have an addiction that's not even worth addressing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um and the way we address it is very similar to like a drug addict being like, no no no, I'm gonna I'm I'm on this new methadone. It's like, you know, we're we're greening our McDonald's and we're um and we're getting uh, solar on our houses. Um like the smoker putting a nicotine patch on while they're smoking. It's mm-hmm. just not it's not it's not impressive, let me put it that way. <laughs> I'm not impressed. Yeah, and, I mean. Uh, and, and I think more of humanity than that. And I think that there's something, there's something more that we can do. So I guess, I guess my message would just be to be the old cheerleader right now and be like, you know, um, all it takes is a couple permissionaries, a couple of people who don't give a fuck to go out there, do the thing the right way, be the change they want to see, and other people follow, and, and you know you risk your reputation and all that bullshit, but what you gain uh, is the reflection at the end of the day on the deathbed that you were the most righteous motherfucker out there
0: <laughs> and the things that we're afraid of, just to double double click on it are the things that we need to gravitate towards, you know, just like you talk about making yourself anxious or making yourself nervous before getting on stage I mean it's like you need to feel that feeling that that, that overcoming that fear and getting to the love behind it or the flow state or whatever it may be the, the reward and that does require bucking the system a little bit or, or, or turning it off or walking away and, and choosing a different path. Um, it means, it, it
1: means being able, being able to knowing that you can walk away, uh, you know, just, mm-hmm. just having that sense because otherwise you have no agency,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I I basically have two more quick ones. Uh, one, just how should people stay connected and make sure they're up on your work? Is, is Instagram the best way or are there other spaces for you to be followed?
1: (laughs) Uh, no, Instagram's good. Uh, uh Alex underscore I think that's I think that's on my uh
0: Yeah, it's on your profile. Uh, Alex underscore person. Ebert. Yeah, and we'll put it and in. And then that uh account.
1: substack badguru.substack.com. Badguru.substack.com. Love yeah, it. You can find some of my some of my writings.
0: Some, the ruminations. And, yeah. And to take us out, what's your favorite love song?
1: Um I don't know, man. Uh Unfortunately, probably my least favorite love song is coming to my mind, uh, and that is uh, Paul McCartney's uh, love song. Oh God!
0: Uh, oh, we, we could do yeah. better than
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, how about uh, um,
0: the dog doesn't like it either.
1: Yeah, I'll say uh, I'll, I'll, go, I'll flip I'll flip McCartney and say Oh Yoko. How about that? There
0: you go there you go paul would be very happy with that choice yeah <laughs> awesome all right well everyone go blast Oyoko. yoko um and uh alex thank you so much for doing this with me i feel like we could chat on a porch with some lemonade for hours uh but it's a yeah, joy to do it right class. now
1: thank you so much
0: and uh yeah have a beautiful rest of your evening and uh take good care and we'll see you soon cheers man. all right peace take care everyone Thanks for listening to Love Extremist Radio. If you like this podcast, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. If you want to learn more about being a love extremist, check out www.extremist.love and follow Love Extremist on Instagram and Facebook. Find me also on Instagram at Ethan Lipsitz. Hope to hear from you soon. Peace.
1: Love is the truth, love is the truth, love is the truth.